Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Reasons to Believe, Dr. Newfeld will bring us a message entitled God's Amazing Love. So let's turn to John 3.16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. A number of years ago, two men, both new immigrants to Canada, came to my office. It appears they had a protracted discussion in their extended family about something, and these two men wanted to find out the truth about their discussion. And so they simply picked a church at random, and they walked in and they asked the secretary if they could talk to the priest or whoever the person was that could answer their question. You know, she directed them to my office, and we had a fascinating discussion. It turns out that they had heard that the Christian God had been raised from the dead. You know, they didn't understand how God could die in the first place and what was this idea about coming to life again. And so they wanted to know, was all of that true? And if so, how was that true? And what does all of that mean? You know, I first thanked them for coming and I told them how much it meant to me to hear of this kind of discussion in their family. I commended them for talking about God. Nothing, I said, could be more important. And and they agreed. And with that, I said it was important for me to simply tell them the story about Jesus, and and they said they'd be delighted to listen. I began by telling them the account of the virgin birth, and I could tell that they were hooked right there. And then I told them about the beginning of Christ's public ministry, how, how Satan had come to tempt him, and I told them about how he went about teaching the kingdom of heaven. And then in order to demonstrate that, I gave them examples of of some of the miracles he did, as well as how he cast out demons and fed a multitude with a few loaves and fish and on a few occasions even raised people from the dead. And then I told them how he was hated by the religious leaders, and I explained that with the help of the Roman government, they trumped up charges against him and incited a crowd against him and how how he was finally crucified. And then I explained the empty tomb and the post-resurrection appearances and how after 40 days he was taken up to heaven after promising that one day he would come again. And the men listened patiently. At times they asked clarification and I tried to answer any question that they might have. And clearly they were engaged and even though their English was not their first language, we made sure that we understood each other and even stopped the narrative at times to make sure that we did understand each other. And when I was done, there was a, a period of silence, and, and I could tell they, they needed some time to absorb what they had heard. And finally, one of the two said to me, well, what does all of these things mean? Now, I could tell we had come to the most important moment of our discussion, and I knew immediately that what I would say next would be what they would take home to their families. I mean, I couldn't imagine a more important moment, and my mind was racing. What was I going to say? And the next words would be, for them, the focal point of the entire Jesus story. And then in an instant, it came to me. I said, men, here's what it means. All of this means that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And without even a moment's hesitation, the man who asked me what this meant said, well then, that would be very good news. Good news indeed. John 3.16 is the most recognized verse in the entire Bible. More sermons have been preached on this passage of the Bible than from any other passage of Scripture. It's often the very first verse from the Bible that a little child will memorize. I imagine that almost every single person listening to me today 
can repeat John 3.16 from memory, even if you know very little else about the Bible. It captures the heart of the very essence of the entire message of the Christian faith. It is the good news. It is the gospel. But in all of this comes a danger. And the danger is that, that we think we already know this verse so well, we stop paying attention, thinking there is nothing new to be learned here. Indeed, let me go further. The great danger is that we have learned John 3.16 very much like a, a parrot might learn it. You know, you can teach a parrot to repeat John 3.16, but he'll never be able to tell you what it means. And so it is with many of us. Having heard, and might I say, even overheard this verse, we've already assumed that we understand when, in fact, that one verse presents us with one of the great mysteries of the gospel. Today, in our ongoing study of the life of Christ from the book of John, we're going to take a new look at God's amazing love for the human race. A man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, has just visited Jesus. He's found out that in order to get into the kingdom of God, he has to be born again. We learned that that phrase, born again, refers to the regeneration of the heart. The inner desires and longings of the soul need to be renovated, fundamentally changed by God. An inner transformation must occur in you just to get into the kingdom of God. Now, it should be said, the assurance that when the Holy Spirit transforms a human heart, that when we're born again, is this assurance that we will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a source of great comfort to believers. The Bible calls this being in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us that for all who are in Christ, Christ has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I mean, I could go on and on. The point is, once we're born again, we're, we're transformed from within, from God. We've been united with Christ. But the question that remains is perhaps an obvious question to many, and yet it needs to be asked. Why would God choose to change men and women and grant them eternal life? And why this grace? And don't say it's because God needs people. You know, I recently was a part of a worship service where we sang what, what otherwise was a God-glorifying song, and it, but it contained a very silly line. It said, God didn't want heaven without you, as if God so overwhelmed at being alone in heaven, he had to do something about that. See, not only is that silly, it's God dishonoring. It suggests that God can't be satisfied in himself, but requires us to bring him satisfaction. This is the gospel of the needy God. It's the gospel of the incomplete God, the God who's casting about and looking for people to fill the void that he feels in his soul. Indeed, whenever we think this way, I am sure we're not thinking about God at all. We're thinking about a being like ourselves. So then, if God is all-sufficient, he delights in his own being, what is it then that motivates him to grant the privilege of the new birth to human beings? And that's the question that John 3.16 answers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, before we seek to understand the depths of that statement, let me point out a little detail. 
Some of you who've got a, a red-letter Bible will have the words of John 3.16 in red as if it was Jesus who said this. But that's just a thing. Did Jesus say these words, or does John, who's describing the meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus, break into this account and explain it to us? That is, he tells us what Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus actually means. You see, I think the latter is the case. John is explaining to us how it is that Jesus offers the new birth to people, people just like Nicodemus, or for that matter, to you and I. So let's discover why God offers eternal life. First, we notice the reason for it is that God loves. You know, when we speak of God's love, especially in our world, it's perhaps one of the hardest words to define. Now, what do you mean by love? You know, I once shared John 3.16 with a young man who told me he didn't know what love was. He came from a broken and an abusive home. Love, he said, is, is meaningless to me. So what does it mean when we say God is love? You know, compounding the problem of understanding what we mean when we say that God loves people is the fact that in the English language, love is an altogether vague word. But the ancient Greeks had, in fact, four different words for love. You know, we in our language have simply used one word to cover everything from sexuality, friendship, to admiration, to emotion, to marital commitment, to sacrificial giving of ourselves, to even to greeting people. That's why so many people are confused about God's love. They might say, why would a God of love send people to hell or allow people to suffer? You know, they might say, you know, if God truly loved me, he would have let me have, and then, you know, you fill in the blank. Now, how do we go from a fuzzy view of the love of God to a clear picture of the love of God? Well, I think John 3.16 defines God's love in a number of ways. And I'll explain that in just a bit. But in all of John's writings, God's love is based upon the character of God and not the object of his love. You know, that means that, that God didn't love us because he found us lovable or worthy of salvation. He does not. You see, in that way, God's love for us is very different from the kind of love that we most often find in ourselves. We love, for we find the object of our love to be lovely. God is different. He loves because he's love. So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. Today, there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s. And since then, generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. Celebrate all that God has done and what he continues to do through the teaching of his word. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, I said that God's love for us is defined in a number of ways. First, God's love for us is based on the character of God 
and not on the object of his love. You know, John 4 verse 16 simply says, God is love. Love is an essential attribute of God. It's a description of him. Love is rooted in his character. God doesn't love you because you're lovely. He loves you because he's God. See, let's stop and think about that for a moment. It's a natural reaction for sinners to think that God can't love them. You know, since God knows what I've done, how could he love me? You know, people who come from homes that have never had or experienced unconditional love, you know, they might think that. If the only love you've ever experienced was conditional and short-term, it's difficult to imagine such a God. But God is different. He loves you today. He loved you yesterday. He will love you tomorrow. I've heard people say, I mean, how can God love me after what I've done? You know, I've cheated on my spouse. I've, I've abused someone. I, maybe I've used my position to work harm in someone else's life. Some of you listening to me feel exactly that way. Perhaps today, as you listen to me, you visited a prostitute. Or some of you may have broken the law. Some of you struggle with lust every day, or anger, or unforgiveness, or rage, or problems with alcoholism or drugs. Your conscience is bothering you. Listen, you are unlovely. But God loves you because he is love. It's basic to his being. His love is not found in the object of his love, but rather in his nature. See, second, God's love is for a rebellious and ruined world that he does not need. You know, several things need to be noticed about John 3.16. What is of interest is the term world. You might think that this simply means that God loves the world in the sense that he loves every single person in the world. You know, when we were kids, some of us sang, you know, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Now, even while that's true, that doesn't get at what's being said here. I want to compare John 3.16 to another verse that speaks about the world, and I'm here reading 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. That says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see what John means when he speaks about the world. For him, the world is a system of human thinking. It's a, it's a value system. It's an, an expression of lifestyle. It's a, it's a way of living. The world consists of essentially three categories, money, sex, and power. It's not love that drives the world, but lust and craving and boasting. It's about selfishness. It's the opposite of what God is. We live in a rebellious and ruined world. We're reminded that war is being waged in many parts in the world right now. And whenever we think about that, we should be reminded that we're witnessing just another demonstration of a world that's gone into ruin. Before the story of this world finally ends, all of humanity will be locked in a bitter, bloody conflict that would destroy everyone were it not for the fact that Christ will save this ruined world. John 3 verse 18 says that we are condemned already, but God is love. But in God, righteousness and justice are not the opposite of love. They're a part of love. 
God is zealous for justice. He is zealous to vindicate the greatness of his name, of his reputation. In effect, John 3.18 is saying that the sentence against the human race has already been passed. None of us will be exonerated. We've already failed the test. Standing before the terrible righteousness of God, we have been declared guilty. The world is right now teetering before an awe-inspiring abyss. Before us looms that great mass of burning sulfur, and we're racing for destruction. It's an alarming crisis of unspeakable proportion. I want you to imagine setting sail on the maiden voyage of the Titanic. You've been told that the ship is a marvel of modern engineering, that it's the first unsinkable boat. So you've purchased a ticket and your heart is singing. This will be a historic voyage. Only you don't know how historic it will actually be. Your voyage will be remembered through human history as the story of the voyage of the damned, if, if only you knew. You know, that before the angels and the heavenly beings, the history and adventures of this world will always be remembered as the voyage of the damned. It is a story of the cravings of sinful man, the, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, money, sex, and power leads to ruin. The amazing thing about this is that God does not need this world. Acts 17 verse 25 says, And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God doesn't need one thing on this earth, not even our love or our fellowship or you simply being around. And on top of that, Psalm 50 verse 12 says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Now, now not that God is hungry or that he has needs, but even if he did, he certainly wouldn't come to us to meet them. See, God's a trinity, and all the need for love and fellowship are already met in the fellowship of the three persons who are the one God. God is complete, not needy. He doesn't need this condemned, ruined, and warlike, and, and hate-filled world. And all of that makes God's love for this world so shocking a world that rightfully deserves God's condemnation and which is not needed by God is nonetheless passionately loved by God. Why? Because God is love. That is his nature. And that's such good news. Let me personalize that. Whoever you are, God loves you. You've not earned that love. You're certainly not worthy of that love. But his love is steady and unbroken. It's been said often, but needs to be repeated. If you were the only person alive that had sinned, Christ would still have died for you. But would you notice third, that God's love is sacrificial beyond imagination. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I know that many of us have heard of this before and we, we tell ourselves really it's not new, but, but let me add a new wrinkle. Why do you think God's sacrifice is so great in sending Jesus? I mean, since God is from eternity past to eternity future, a thousand years for him is but a moment in time. And since Jesus only spent 30 some years on this planet, why not simply say, well, it was rough for Jesus, all right, but he's back in heaven after but a heartbeat of time. Doesn't seem overly sacrificial, does it? What then was the cost of God's love for us? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. You know what Jesus has become? He is now one of us. He is our brother. Well, you might say, okay, but he's gone back into heaven. Well, sure enough. But how has he gone? And the answer is, he has gone in the form of a man. I know he's never stopped being God, but he is now also one of us for all eternity. Listen to how John would describe Christ when he saw him in heaven. Revelation 5 verse 6 says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. You know, in every place where Christ is described in glory, he eternally bears the wounds of his crucifixion, and he also permanently bears our humanity. Listen again to the writer of Hebrews from chapter 2 verses 11 to 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Can you imagine Jesus coming for his church, that it and Christ rise and all of us who are left alive greet him as he comes in the air and he ushers us into heaven before his Father? He says to the Father, these are my brothers and sisters. What Jesus did by becoming a man was forever, and he forever will bear the wounds of his crucifixion on his glorified body so that we will forever see the evidence of God's love for us. God counted the cost for a rebellious and ruined world that he did not need. He sacrificed his one and only son and condemned him to a cross to bear the excruciating weight of the world's sin, including yours and mine. And there he experienced the wrath of God Almighty. That's why the hymn writer wrote, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul! What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to lay aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. John, I recall when you first came to Back to the Bible Canada, we toured across the country on a, on a tour called I Will Tell, and you chose John 3.16 as your prime scripture reference. Why did you do that? Yeah, I did that because it is an expression of the heart of the gospel. I mean, God loves the world. I mean, really only Christianity presents us with a God of love, but I'm also concerned that sometimes we don't understand the love of God. And as I mentioned in my message, we end up being like parrots. We've heard it before and we can repeat it back, but we haven't yet grasped the depth of it. And so I'm wanting us to recapture again this, this marvelous passage of Scripture, say it back to each other and, and recognize how deeply this speaks to our lives. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary Caribbean cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th 
2019 for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca.